Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. for the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Here is your host, Paul Tarsi. Well, it's the first show of 2024, and we have another packed program for you this time around. As it's the first show of the month, of course, we'll be playing our usual game show, which we call Corridors of Power. And our subject, which the panel have to nominate their choices for this time round is Ayrton Senna's Greatest Race. And we've got a learned panel this time around. In addition to our regulars of Paul Jordan, Jim Roller, we also have two gentlemen who know their way around a racing car or two. I'm delighted to welcome Peter Snowden and Nick Padmore. Nick, thank you very much indeed for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, and thank you for coming back onto the panel. A uh, bit rusty this time around? But for me, uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, I've been practising. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Gertie, I think these kind of stacked the deck against us this time around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've just been setting up my uh, recording gear and everything. You know, it takes a very long time ipad and some airpods so i'm very professional as per usual i thought it was going to be on camera so that's it We're all so you've good. done your hair i have to say nick that your your hair takes about as long to do as mine does <laughs> yeah we try hard yeah well, both of them. grass doesn't grow on a busy road <clears throat> That's very true. Yeah. And Snowy, um, you've uh, well, welcome back. Speaking of pleased to uh, please have you on the show. <laughs> and it's uh, it's it's already good that uh, just before we came on air, you you had a quick bicker with with Jim, so that was fine. <laughs> it's, it's like a couple of boxes, isn't it? That sort of that you know, the way in, but we've got to do it. You know, it's a tradition. That's right. The, the, the yeah, face off. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. That's what it's called. Brilliant. You, good to be back, and thank thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Early no, early Saturday Night Live. Jane, you ignorant <laughs> slut. <laughs> Idiot. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> also on the show, Jim's going to be talking to one of the most influential promoters of historic racing in the world, and that's Patrick Peter. Jim, don't spill the beans yet, but uh, that must have been a fabulous conversation. It was. It was part of Epartrade's Industry Race Week. Epartrade is a, a a B2B website that is a source for auto racing, uh, all forms of racing. And annually they do this video conference where they gather up journals and, and dignitaries from motorsports. And this year they had 80 different sessions over a five-day period where there were half-hour sessions where we interviewed uh, folks. Uh, I was lucky enough to draw Patrick Peter, and we talked about 
everything that Peter Otto is doing, including uh, we're going to spill the beans about a, a, a new event in America in this year in 2024. Mm. Yeah. Looking forward to that. But it had uh, industry race week is, is great. We had everybody from Rick Hendrick and uh, Mark Miles, uh, every, every uh, Chip Ganassi, every great hitter, uh, in, in America, I also was able to uh, do uh, in-depth interviews with the folks from Dorna about MotoGP and also mm-hmm. the folks at ASO who not only do the Tour de France bike race, which has nothing to do with Industry Race Week, but they also do the Dakar Raid Rally programs. So that was very interesting as well. So you'll be hearing some of that as we uh, we'll, we have access to those and we'll be dropping some of those in throughout the year as they pertain. Because the Dakar folks have got a big push in 2024 towards their historic side. Really? Yes. Which also is very interesting. Isn't it amazing how everything now has a historic side? Well, yes, including us. Well, <laughs> and, and it grows year by year. Because we're all yeah. old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I only have an historic side these days. Yes. That's beside the yes. point. I resemble that comment. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I know that you spend much of your time in a, in a coaching role and sitting in the passenger seat of sometimes some very valuable motor cars whilst other people drive them. Well, or bad. I don't really know. Does that get frustrating? Um, it, it depends. It's, it's, it's flip side, as Nick, Nick will know. Nick's done a bit of this in the past, um, and it's uh, and he's very wise and moved on from it. It, it can be coaching or survival, <laughs> depending on the ability level. Um, and it's uh, when, it, when it's survival mode, it's it's um, it, it's less a less of a fun day at the office, shall we say? Right, right. Yeah, I think you're being di- diplomatic, which is very unlike you. But uh, you still yeah, hear me? You should have. You should have let Rick really. Yep. <laughs> yes. Go on. Go on. Tell us. Tell us the truth, Snowy. <laughs> yeah. How many times do you reckon you say "break a day"? Break. Oh, oh break. too many. Too many break. times. Too far. Far. Far too many times. It's. Um, it depends on the conditions as well. Obviously, when it's. Uh, uh, normally for us, always say the wetter the better when it's racing because I think Nick, you like me, you, you like the challenge. Um, yeah. add, add in night as well, even better. It's why I always love twenty-four hour races. It's just a that extra layer, that challenge. Um, but it's uh, people often say to you, Nick, you know only too well the the phrase you've got the best job in the world, and you're yeah. always so tempted to say, well, it depends which seat you're sitting in, sir, madam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. The scary seat. As soon as you can get out of that, the better, really. Yeah, really. Yeah, is exactly. it, is it, it is, like that? Nick? It is survival. It is survival. And sort of... yeah, no, every sorry to talk over you, but everyone is different. You know, uh, you get some people who listen and want to learn, but then you get others who I'm talking more of like an experience day. You get others that turn up and just want to go flat out um, and rely on all the toys to get you through the corners. So uh, it, 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 it never ceases to amaze me. That, that, as you say, you, you'll find certainly so. Say, say more of an experience day, as you say, which is obviously not coaching, really. That is that is an experience, as it suggests. Mm. And no matter how much of a, a brief you give and whatever, and the car and the power and its capabilities and whatever, and then they get to the end of the pit lane and just floor it. Yeah. And you, you just think, how, how have you got here in one piece? Because yeah, surely you can't drive on the road in this way, because... And I, I, I genuinely don't. I'm not a psychologist. I genuinely don't know what what happens to people, what comes over them to think that they are, as you say, I guess, just reliant on us, sort of saying, yeah. "Don't, don't, don't." And we just, call it the red mist. 
Yeah, yes. but it's even yeah. better when they turn around and look at you and go, don't worry, I've done a bit before. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. I've done, I've, done some, I've done some karting and you just think, oh, that's it. Or, living, or living the say, best version of my life, wonderful. Uh, don't yeah. worry, I've got this as you've just yeah. got off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we, we, something we've... else that'll test your mettle is sometime be a rally co-driver for a journalist who's never done it before. You've well, done that, haven't you? No, there are, yes, there are, some, there are some levels I won't stoop to. That's, yeah. Yes, I have. Were you braver than me than Jim? Uh, the the best part was um, actually probably the funniest story was um, I was with I will I won't mention any names but he was probably the most skilled of the journalists in track racing that I had ever co co driven for. Um, luckily, I, I I ended up driving more than I than I co drove on part of this deal, but. Um, he wouldn't go the speed limit in the transits. And finally, at one point I just had to reach over and yank up on the handbrake because we were coming into a small town in the transit. Now looked over, he's going 75 miles an hour. I'm like, dude, if you get a ticket, we're getting thrown out. And so I yeah. Yeah. yanked up on the handbrake and we spun through the middle of town. <laughs> <laughs> what the blank are you doing? And then I explained to him in words of one syllable or less that, if he gets a ticket, he gets thrown out of the event, and he was a good boy for the rest of the event. But, but he was probably the most on on the roads. He was the one I was the least worried about. He really had great car control, and, but it couldn't shut off. Couldn't couldn't shut it off. Mr. Um, Tarzi, can I just very quick on the talk? Can you ask Mr. Uh, Mr. Padmore how many Formula One cars he's driven now? Well, you can ask him. Go, go, on, Nick. Go. The floor is yours. Um, Forty. There you so go. I, I, I've just got back from the Dubai Historic and I was driving, well, I attempted to drive a Spirit. Um, it didn't really happen. <laughs> it didn't really happen. But, yeah, so 40 now. The Spirit wasn't willing, yeah. And there was no yeah. Spirit there. Oh, dear. Um, and, uh, 40. It, yeah, 40, yeah, from 1958 to 2005. So well done, you. Wow. Yeah, I, you know what, like when I just talk about that again you know typical me i can't believe i've done that but yeah it's amazing opportunities and um yeah it's yeah it's incredible i've got a photo can never can never take it away my friend that's quite a thing no, four zero yeah, formula one cars that's amazing yeah, that's, yeah i've got a photo of every single one so i always want <laughs> to do have. that as uh you know it had to, had to be done so yeah the, the number 40 <laughs> didn't really go to go well because it caught fire so um <laughs> Yeah, that didn't last. That ran out of spirit pretty quick. Wow. So, yeah. out of all those, Nick, I've got to ask the question, which one is the best? But, yeah, I can never say one, so I've got to say two. I think um, the FW25 um, absolutely blew my brains. <clears throat> I, couldn't, I could not believe how fast that car was. That, that was only on a runway. But I, I got a, an insight to um, the drivers of that period, um, you know, how fast and how fit they must have been. It was just so fast. It was like being put in a cannon. Someone walks past with a lighter and just goes, there you go. Um, really? And you go, yeah, it was incredible. But really, for, I think on a lap, a lap and everything else, it's still got to be the, the ex-Carlos uh, Reutemann FW07, which was phenomenal. Uh. 
my, my favorite all time. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, my, my my races were twenty five minutes long, um, and you know it's physical. But you think those guys probably up to two hours long. You think, how on earth did you do it? And I'm going to go off off on a little story. But I remember for the first time I, I drove the cars at Barcelona, and um, <laughs> it was exclusive hire as well. So there was only two cars on track, and I remember driving down. I think this was like number three or number four, but driving down the pit lane and I, I just looked in the, in the wing mirrors and, you know, you, you see the rear wheels, which is huge the pods <laughs> and everything. And then after a few laps going through turn three, which we all know at Barcelona is incredible. It goes on and on and on. I was expecting my neck to go. Now the neck was all right, but my body was being pushed through the seat into the, into the tub and through into the, the, the cockpit. <laughs> and it's incredible because it was my core i wasn't you know prepared for it the first time i drove it it was my core that was just being pushed through the side of the car so straight back in the gym after that true <laughs> real ground effects yeah and oh. we have to run a 40 mil ride height so okay those ah. guys in the in period were mega but we accidentally dropped under that 40 mil <laughs> rider occasionally every time over 60 miles an hour um so yeah, turn three was incredible. Yeah, so that's 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 a special card to me, and I won the championship. Wow, in there. wow. I'm that, I, I think one of my favourite stories um, that we've had in the last couple of years on this show was talking to Rob Smedley, um, who said about his first test that he did um, with Fernando Alonso, and that Alonso spun it. And they and they sort of brought him back this you know this young kid, and and they said well you know, why did you spin, and he said because I could see the the, the vortices coming off the, off the wing like you see you know on on TV yeah. he said and I was I was so taken aback by that I was watching those and I wasn't watching the track, <laughs> and then he spun. Um, but yeah, it must it must be when you're doing something like that, Nick. That you know those aches and pains and and external forces and things that must detract from what you're doing. Yeah, it's very yeah. You you do feel especially your neck. I think your neck um, when that goes, that's probably the most scariest thing. Actually, I had that at Zambul this year in the seventy seven. Uh, Zanvil, I, I was amazed how physical that track is now with the, the new tarmac and the banking. And after sort of probably only about six laps, well, I was in trouble. You know, the I can't remember the names, but <clears throat> you go over the hill and then you're down into that right, then a right, then another right. Um, yeah. There, yeah. it's a lot of load and you, you're, you're turning, turning. We're flat over that, that hill in fifth gear. And um, we're only down one for the for the right. So, you know, the car does, it's not ground effect, but it's still loads of grip. But, yeah, I could feel my neck going. So it, every time in a straight line, I was, I, believe it or not, I was just sort of letting go of the wheel, resting my head back on the on the cockpit and uh, just trying to save it. Really? Wow. Really, yeah, yeah. You're listening to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. And Snowy, you've, you've, um, you've driven some fairly high downforce group C cars and things in, over the years. Is is that a similar kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, similar sort of era. Um, I mean, I, I've always described them, I and mean, I've never been 
privilege enough yet to drive an F1 car of, of any era, and I, it is on, on, on the bucket list. So um, listen in, Nick. Um, yeah, just w- w- one or two, me mate. You know that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I did always used to describe the Group C cars as being you know the sort of Formula One cars with two doors and a roof. You know, and yeah. they were were quite incredible. I think. Uh, I think for me, the most amazing was was still the Spice SE88C, which was, you know, a, a, a DF, it was a DFR version, DFL actually, 3.3 version. But it was, you know, 570-odd um, brakes, 750 kilos, and as you say, tons of grip. And it was just, and of course, as, as Nick will testify in some of the older Formula 1 cars he's driven, you know, the Group C cars, they're aluminium tubs that fold, and your feet are way out in front of the wheels at the front. Mm-hmm. So you you know even now just saying that it makes my ankles you know tingle, uh, and these things were doing two, you know two two thirty two twenty two thirty mile an hour on the Mulzahn. In fact, the, the one the one mm-hmm. I raced a bit, which is a, a Graf Sport car, holds the terminal speed record for a C two car at Le Mans because its debut was eighty nine the last year without the chicane on the Mulzahn, and I think it's it's either two thirty four two thirty six mile an hour that car did. Wow, as a C two wow. car, amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. For for me, Group C is is uh, you know something I have to do. I actually drove the Lancia uh, LC two the other week, mm. the Martini yeah. car. Yeah, and that car was that was in Dubai. The the uh, that car was um, I think clocked at two hundred and forty five on the Morsan straight. Yeah, um, which is not be a C one, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I I drove that and it had had the Le Mans gearing in it, so it didn't really work, but. I love that that type of racing. The cars look awesome, and yeah, fair play to. You and know, you, you just you just mentioned Nick that you're doing 25 minute races in these cars days, and yeah, and the boys, I hate the phrase, yeah. back in the day, they did one hour, one hour and a half, one hour forty. The Group C cars, they were doing two plus hour stints, yeah, and of course Nick. the car was doing 24 hours, yeah, yeah, unrelated, wasn't it? Yeah. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, Nick Pradmore, Padmore, <laughs> women want him. Men want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much. Okay. So, right, Jim, close that, close that website down again. Back on point. Can, can I just throw, throw in something at this point? Now, I commentated on you, Nick, at Brands Hatch for the Masters. I was up in the comms oh, box for two days during that race meeting, and I'm doing it again this year. Sorry, and um, one of the things when I was driving away from the circuit that I really, really regretted not talking about while the Formula One cars were out is that people watch Formula One these days and you see those wonderful shots from inside the cockpit and you know, you're going down the straight in your Formula One car, you get four metres from the corner, you stand on the brakes, you flick a finger, you go bam, 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 down through how many gears yeah. that you actually want, back on the throttle, out the other side of the corner. The, the workload in the older cars is totally different. And stop me if I'm completely wrong on this, but you're going in, you've actually got a clutch, haven't you? Yeah. You've got a clutch. So you're on the clutch, you're on the brakes, yeah. you're then going down through the gearbox, heel and towing. So at one point you're on th- all three pedals. You've got on an H, H pattern manual gearbox. On my yeah, car. I was going to say, hand on the yeah. steering wheel, hand on the gearbox. You've got each limb doing something different <laughs> yeah. while you're going down in this braking area, while you're still trying to dive down the inside of someone and take a position. That is an yeah. incredible workload. Yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And especially around there, what you know, what a weekend that was. That was so good. I really enjoyed that 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 weekend. The racing was good. Um and you were very busy. Like, you know, the run out of Druids, it's second gear, you're up to third, almost touching fourth before Graham Hill. And yeah, you've got to come down to the, the gears and then you're you're back in. But and then and then oh, what's really cool is on the exit of Druids in second, you're spinning up like mad. 
And I've mentioned before on this that when you spin up like mad, you get a massive vibration, which is the tire judder through the rear of the car. And just as you're getting that, you're like, third, it's so cool. <laughs> and uh, I'll shut up. But yeah, it, yeah. It, it, do, you, do you need a moment, Nick? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's so cool. That just sums it Tissue, up. Tissue, have oh, life mate. envy now. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I so had good. it the minute he started talking. What are you talking? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but um. But yeah, and it's it's you know moments like that. You're up through the gears, but you just you just get on with it. But you've really got to have a have a proper downshift as well, a blip to make it uh, nice and comfortable because you have so much grip on the rear that it grabs the tires pretty quick on the downshifts. Over. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, no, I know. And no <laughs> computer is involved. <laughs> no, it's no. the driver. You know, isn't it? Yeah, that's wonderful. wonderful. And Nick, Nick what, sort, what sort of times would, you, would a, the FW07 do around, say, Doddington? Ah, oh, 101. Yeah, wow. well, that's good. We, we were doing 103s in the spy, so yeah, there yeah. you go. Then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, 101. I suppose, I suppose, new tyres, everything else, you'd you'd be on a minute, but yeah, that's mm. fast. Craners, it's flat in fifth. Yeah, just down one what? the old hairpin. <laughs> yeah, and that's lovely. What? It's, lo- it's lovely through there. Yes, yeah, it's flat and just the left foot brake for the old hairpin, just to blend it. I remember. That's what I used to do. But anyway, it's a yeah. Wow. Oh, no, I'm down. I'm down one for the old hairpin. Oh. Jeez. Yeah, and then I'll get, get a bit scared. <laughs> I see the runway coming a bit close. So, no, G- yeah. G- Jim, Jim, and Paul will understand <coughs> this statement, uh, and I think probably Peter will as well. But uh, as as our colleague Joe Bradley would say, this is a tissue moment. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. easy. Yes, that's uh, a paper towel. <laughs> <laughs> Bra- you're bragging again. Um, but, um, right, now, talking of corridors of power, uh, got some very exciting news for everybody. Um, for those people who are new to the show, the game requires each panellist to make their own nomination for a given subject and to make their case why they should be chosen as a winner. It's then up to me to make a decision. And as I said at the top of the show, it's um, this time round. it's going to be Ayrton Senna's greatest race, and we'll we'll come to that a bit later on. But on the 23rd, 24th, and 25th of February, Race Retro takes place at Stoneley in the Midlands in the UK, and we've been asked to run a Corridors of Power on each of the three days of the live stage. So we'll be on the live stage, and we're going to be running a Corridors of Power with dare I say this, audience participation as well. So oh, no, um, we're not. we'd love to see everybody <laughs> there for that. I, I think I'm going to regret that. Um, no, that'll be fun. But we're making making plans right now for that, and we'll keep you up to date uh-huh, with the news. More than plans. We are making more than plans. Why? Yesterday I made airplane reservations. Oh, I will what? be arriving at Heathrow on the 20th. And looking forward to three days in the Midlands, boys, in February. Not exactly a Caribbean vacation, but still going to be fun. What could possibly go wrong? Exactly. (laughs) Alert the Border Patrol. The Yanks are coming. 
That is brilliant yeah. news. Pull, pull up the drawbridge you. now. <laughs> Do you want us to drive? <laughs> oh, no. I'll pick you up. <laughs> Nick, Nick, here's an idea. You and I take it in turns to take Jim. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I'm an old man on the road, though. <laughs> You can always I do not tell the real race car drivers because most of them are because they <laughs> yeah, know exactly. not everybody's going in the same direction they are and not paying attention. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. But that's brilliant news, Jim. Excellent. I'm uh, I'm really really pleased with that. So we um, we we have the makings of a team, I think. So that's good. We'll keep everybody up to date on what's happening. Do have a look at the Historic Racing News Facebook page because there'll be lots of um, race retro stuff there, not just about our bit, but generally. So we'll we'll keep you informed as to what's going on with that. But do come and see us at Race Retro on either the 23rd, 24th and 25th. We'll be on stage every day. And not all of every day, but uh, but we'll be there. So looking forward to seeing everybody. And feel free to heckle Paul Jordan. I can take it. I'm, I'm used to it. I get it in the street these days. <laughs> You're just mean, Jim. <laughs> no, now, he, he knows I'm kidding. <laughs> I kid there, you. There's, love. there's um. <laughs> That, that's a, that's another part uh, part for the epitaph, isn't it? Mm, they, they'll yeah. chisel away on the granite of your gravestone. He knew I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, many people will recall that our colleagues on Midweek Motorsport make their nominations for Driver of the Year. And I'm grateful to our listener, Jean Chauvet, who contacted us to say that the same spirit should nominate a driver of yesteryear on our show. So, gentlemen, just as a very light-hearted way of, uh, of looking at that, I thought I'd drop this in and we could all nominate our, our driver of yesteryear. Um, Paul Joe, who, who would you nominate? You uh, I, I'm just going to say the same name that I'm expecting everyone else to say. Surely it's Juan Manuel Fangio. You know, five times Formula One world champion. Only driver to win the Formula One World Championship with more than two teams, and he did it with four teams Alfa Romeo, Ferrari, Mercedes, Benz, and Maserati. This is a man, he won 24 of the 52 Grand Prix that he contended. And remember, way, way less races in the 1950s. And he was on pole for 55% of all those Grand Prix. This guy was just. Yes, this guy was just, you know, and he was against people like Alberto Ascari, you know, a forgotten great. Sterling Moss, Giuseppe Farina, Mike Thornton, Peter Collins. You know, there was some serious opposition, but he was the man. And, and, and this is for me what always tips it in his favour. There is a huge hole in his career due to World War II. He was 40 years old when he won his first world title. 46 when he won his last world title. And, you know, this is a man just basically you know, accepted by his peers as the best. Hence, hence his nickname, El Maestro. He also had the nickname El Chueco, which uh, translates as the bandy legs one. But uh, we won't go there, to be quite honest. But, yeah, <laughs> you just never find a bad word spoken or written about him. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> beat that, yeah. basically. Good point. Yeah, good point. We're not judging this, but I think that's uh, that's a good a, a good, good he one. He may be the only reason that Sterling Moss never was world champion. Yes, I think you're right. 
I'm not, I'm not sure that's an accolade. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sterling Moss quite happily said he learned more in the year at Mercedes driving yeah. around, mm. following mm-hmm. Fangio around than at any other point mm. in his career. Mm. Yeah, good point. Jim, who uh, who would you see? As, I mean, it doesn't need to be necessarily a big star, but who's your driver of yesteryear? Well, mine is staying in the finest of New Year traditions of the historic Racing News Radio Show. I my driver of yesteryear is the he's probably one of the drivers who had the most potential, but unfortunately because of life and and racing and circumstances was never living up to that potential. Much like um, uh, in, in American sports, when a when a young phenom comes on the scene, they say he has a huge upside, and and this driver had a huge upside but never was, uh, unfortunately, his career was snuffed out way too early, and that was Tiatato Fomari. Vietato <laughs> Fomari, I'm sorry. Wow, yes, of course, <clears throat> yes. But as you yeah. say, snuffed out. I mean, you know, that, yeah. that he, he never, yeah. I mean, never his, quite make his it. His brother Siggy was, was almost as good, but uh, for me, Vietato Fomari will, you know, he was, he was so close to Le Mans victory. Um, yes. You know, he was the heir to the Chesterfield fortune. And, you know, he was the he was kind of the consummate. Well, he, he's one of those guys that probably uh, Peter and Nick may have actually uh, may have actually coached were there that kind of thing back in the day. And, and I'm sure they both would have recognized his potential uh, the first time he got behind the wheel. But, yeah, that would very be my, good uh, certainly, certainly not the accolades of uh, uh, Juan Manuel Fangio, but Vietato Fumari certainly is uh, would be one that I really always, always comes to mind when when thinking of greats of the past. I'm, I'm going to steal. I'm going to steal a line from Mr. Jurd, as you just said about his story there. Um, Vietato Fumari overlooked, grossly overlooked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and on his day, there wasn't a match that you couldn't couldn't hold a match to him. I mean, you know. No, the, no, you couldn't. It was you regularly couldn't smoked the opposition. He did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. And it was a career that burned out way too soon. <laughs> Next, oh, good. Early uh, pioneer of cigarette advertising as well, of course. He was. Yes. Yes, he, he was. was. You're listening to the historic Racing News Radio Show. Nick, I know you grew up in a in a racing family. Who who would be your uh, your uh, hero of uh, driver of yesteryear, um, Jackie Stewart. Mm, yes, if I can yes. use that one. Yeah, um, you can use anyone just, you want. I just think you know the guy is a ultimate professional. Was he eighty four now, and he's still still seen at tracks, still um, looking after Rolex guests and doing what he does. But also the you know the three world championships in a very dangerous era. Um, just the way he drove, and then and then bringing the safety. I think we've got to thank him for a lot. The um, the safety he he really pushed, and barriers, and crash helmets, and all of that. But he's just yeah, a legend, absolute legend. And it's it's so nice to see him around at Goodwood. I I don't know I don't know if it got to you in the same way, Nick, as as it got to me. But to see him doing. The, the display at Goodwood yeah. last year in 2023, yeah. just just him on the track with the Tyrrell yeah. 06. Uh, I've, I did. I, I make no secret of the fact I sat there with tears in my eyes. Yeah. And it was fabulous. And when you yeah, see that, as you, you, as you, you just should. got to stand, yeah. stand there and watch. And you just think, you know, what that guy has achieved. And 
he's driving that car around goodly in front of you amazing it's 86 yeah 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 if I can I also, just with with Stuart, I think one of the things about Stuart is I think he's almost one of the first really pragmatic drivers, you know, hence his decision to retire and everything. And as a lovely line that I know you've finally missed, he only did the 99 Grand Prix because he didn't race in his final one when Francois Sauvert was sadly killed. Yeah. But he talks he's in his book friend, wasn't it? very, very much. So he was his protege. He was the guy who yeah, was going to win yeah. the title the next year. But, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a line there. Stuart says, I knew it was time to give up when he looked at a photograph of himself and Francoise on the podium of an earlier race. And Francoise is waving his trophy, and Stuart has turned his upside down, and he's looking at the watermarks on the back to see if it's really silver or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the novelty had worn really? off to a well, degree. Yeah. because he yeah. was yeah. Scottish. Yeah. I can say, you can take the man out of Scotland, can't you? But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to melt this down. I was, in, in typical American fashion, I was going to say much the same thing, Paul, only, only probably in a blunter fashion. I don't think that he gets enough credit for having the courage, not only the brains, and that's what you, mm. I think, said by by uh, pragmatic. Not only was he smart enough, but he had the courage to walk away when he did because he had survived the most dangerous era of Formula One. And if the guy who he held in such high esteem that – he had made him his protege in Francois Severe. And even though the decisions to retire at the end of the season had already been made, the fact that his chosen successor at the team could, could find his demise in that manner. That took a lot of courage to walk away when Jackie did. I just, yeah. I don't think he gets enough credit for, for having that courage to do that because there are many, uh, you know, Brian Redman will, will, will fully, say that he walked away numerous times but then discovered it was the only way he could make a living so he had to go back to it now that takes a lot of courage as well yeah but but still uh, i don't think jackie gets enough credit so no and i mean talking of courage jim i think that his his campaign for safety Got him was also courageous. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. because you know people like Dennis Jenkinson, who was probably the the foremost uh, journalist of his of his generation of his era, um, really really laid into Stuart at the time, and um, I'm, I'm not sure whether he actually used the word coward, but it was very close if he didn't in terms of saying you know that motor racing is supposed to be dangerous it's you know that and and how dare you want to make it safer by putting barriers up instead of trees and you know all those things and well, yeah jackie, jackie was, also liked the shower which you know was a, an, an, an anathema to jenks as well <laughs> <laughs> I do remember um, Nigel Roebuck telling me the story of going to going to dinner with uh, with Dennis Jenkinson, and he said there were there were six of them around the table in this little cottage in Surrey, um, which was powered by a uh, the electricity was powered by a generator, and it was in the dark, and because somebody wanted to go out outside to the bathroom, the other five had to sit in around the dining table in the dark because the generator <laughs> wouldn't do two lights. <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, but saying about the the safety thing that, um, and I'm going to I'm going to name drop here. I'm sorry, chaps, but um, 
I said in my interview last year with Alexander Heskith that and I said, you know, about it was amongst the uh, the most dangerous times for motorsport. And he really put me in my place because he said at the time they were the safest cars that had ever raced. Wow. Now, stop and think about that. Yeah. That that and he's right that they were the safest cars that had ever raced, that looking at them from a 2024 perspective, no, they were horrendously dangerous. But at the time, they were the safest cars that ever raced. And, you know, there is the old saying about, you know, nostalgia isn't what it used to be. And that it's, it's one of those things where we talk about the dangers of, of those, those times, but, if you go back sequentially and say, right, let's go back five years, 10 years, 15 years, then that just gets exponentially more dangerous as time goes by. Well, and there's another aspect to it very much. It's because in the seventies, sixties and seventies, we could see a lot more of it. It wasn't magazine articles and still photos. It was video and film. And, you know, Roger Williamson's crash and, and things of that nature were, were yeah. all seen um, by fans in a way they had never been seen before. Much like in America, the Vietnam War was a huge um, protest point once the American news media started sending the, you know, you got to see wounded soldiers being carried to the helicopters every night on the six o'clock news in the United States on all three networks. And that's when the protest started because people got to see it. And I think in today's world of, of pasteurized everything, and, you know, we warn you that this may be offensive and, and everything else, I think with some of the geopolitical stuff that goes on in the world, if the news media would show what actually happened, you know, maybe, maybe wouldn't, we wouldn't have as much gun violence in America. If we showed some of the, this sounds cruel and awful, and I don't mean it to be, but unless you show the pictures to people, it's, it's, it's a concept to them that is so horrendous. They can't wrap their head around it anyway. And I think that's why, we view this era as so much more dangerous than the rest because in today's day and age, um, some of the, some of the events wouldn't happen because of the safety, but also it was the first time that the fans got to witness for themselves, the carnage when it happened. And that made it that much more vivid in our memories. I think you're right. And I think the other thing with that, Jim, is, is and, and you talk about Vietnam, that that the similar thing is that racing in the 50s, particularly, where we'd had the best part of a decade where life was cheap, because yes. there had been huge, de- huge, huge death in the Second World War, that, that it suddenly wasn't quite the same thing. But it was... There was a parallel, but um, Snowy, I know you're. I know you're sort of um, champing at the bit here because we haven't asked no, you I'm, for I'm your. Enjoying, uh... I'm enjoying listening, even to Jim. 
<laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to add very quickly your note about you said um, uh, Alexander Hesker um, about the, the cars being the safest. You've also got to remember that the drivers knew no different at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, as you say that comparing now to a 2024 car no you can't it's different mm-hmm. um, and the Jackie Stewart comment uh, I was very lucky a couple of years ago to host a, a private event at Goodwood uh, first with uh, Jackie Stewart as, as the main guest and whilst they're doing track activity got to spend a lot of time with him which was, which was fascinating and um, <clears throat> what was very very clear maybe this is a podcast for some other time what was very clear that came through and my, my father was of the Jenks opinion growing up as a, you know an observer and all that in racing that you know is it's dangerous so you know what, what are you what are you fussing about kind of thing Stewart's um main motivation was the the infrastructure and medical system and facilities at circuits motor racing was going to be dangerous the cars didn't need to be as dangerous as they were but that wasn't his bit it was if the unthinkable happened yeah and there it. was no infrastructure there for people there weren't sufficient medical centers helicopters doctors all that, and that's what he really focused on. Exactly. In reality. So, so to call him a coward was was completely unfair because yeah. yes. he still went out and did it. Yes, yes, yeah. No, you... And as as you as you say, Snowy, you uh, you grew up in a in a motor racing motorsport environment with uh, with your family and Aston Martins in particular. So is is your uh, is your choice of a of a driver of yesteryear Aston related or not? Not in the slightest, and um, it's, it's, it's of course it's my my schoolboy hero, Nicky Lauda. Um, I can't I can't disagree with Fangio and everything that Paul said, um, but uh, for Lauda, for me, it's it, he was my schoolboy hero because he was just uh, so different. I apparently my father asked me in about about seventy four seventy five uh, why why I supported Nicky Lauda and not James Hunt, or maybe it must have been by 76 by then. And apparently, at the tender age of 12, I very arrogantly, Nick will stop laughing now, very arrogantly replied, <laughs> because he's the more complete driver of the two. Um, so quite, quite where go. that came from at 12, I don't know, but there you go. <laughs> um, been, been downhill ever since. Um, uh, I, I just now. think, uh, just, just put, you, know, you can do the stats, as Paul did quite rightly about... Um, I'd, I'd forgotten just what the percentage was in the pole position, which is fascinating to hear again. But I'm going to avoid the stats. I'm going to, I'm going to look at it a little bit more sort of organically and say Nicky Lauda had the guts, a bit like Stuart, and just followed on from that. For He had the guts to tell Louis Stanley that his pride and joy BRM was, and I quote, a shitbox. Yes. Yeah. 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 Technical, I'll technical it, term. Yeah. But it's it's a shitbox. Fantastic. As as a nobody in Formula One to have the guts to do that. By you know two years later, he's F1 champion at Ferrari. He then has that extraordinary accident and comes back. Um, he told the priest to disappear. I believe was a phrase. There is a term. I don't think we should broadcast. But <laughs> it was that point that his his wife Molena said. Apparently, the consultant came out of the room and said he's just told the priest to. F off. And she just started laughing and she said, well, that, that's Nicky's all right. He's going to be all right. Then she knew at that point because he felt the priest should have uh, looked after him more and given him, you know, consolation more than, than just saying, you know, last rites. Um, he came back and then had the guts in that 76 um, um, Grand Prix in Fuji in Japan to not challenge, not go to the end because he thought it was stupid. You know, Ferrari said to him, what should we say is wrong with the car? And he said, nothing. Nothing's wrong with the car. It's me. I'm pulling out. Comes back 77, wins it so consummately quickly. I think he didn't do the last two or three races of the year. Then goes to Brabham. In 79 at Brabham, during Canadian Grand Prix qualifying, he pulls in and stops and 
just remember who owns Brabham at the time, Bernie Eccleston, and tells him he's retiring. And Bernie's like, okay, fine, well, we'll discuss this later, you know, at the end of the year. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm retiring <laughs> I'm now. And Bernie's like, no, no, hang on a minute. We've got a race tomorrow. He went, well, yeah, you have. I haven't. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, just, yeah. and just walks away, goes and builds an airline, comes back and wins, you know, joins McLaren. So one of those drivers is... Um, uh, Paul pointed out, like Fangio, he he won with two different teams, and he he won the '84 championship um, with guile and experience over Alan Prost. It was only half a point, but it's the point that won it, uh, or half point that won it. Um, all it takes. It's all it takes. And just remember, he's still the only F1 champion to have won with McLaren and Ferrari in his F1 titles. He's a three-time world champion, also in normally aspirated and turbo era. Mm-hmm. And came back and showed them all how to do it. There was a lovely story, I think it was 82, uh, and he's come back here, which, of course, he won at Brands Hatch and that car. He was at Long Beach, and apparently there was some issue with the McLaren, so he pulled off down one of the escape roads, and whoever it was behind him followed him because it was so neat and so smooth, he thought it was the correct line and realised <laughs> he was in the escape road. <laughs> had, to, had to flick his car around and go back onto the track. Because you know? <laughs> there was no drama. It was just like, oh, switch it off and park it. Um, and I just think, as, as, a, as a human being, just... Uh, incredible, you know, and then the airline with um, you know, with Boeing and that the the Thailand disaster and was it ninety three, ninety two, ninety three, mm-hmm. and and he said that if there was any louder air employee was in, in, remotely culpable, he shut the whole thing down, yeah, and it proved it to be a fault with Boeing, and he took on a corporate America, and they they said it was yeah it was a pilot error, and he said no it wasn't, and they ran the simulations, and they 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 wouldn't oh. believe him. So he then took on Boeing and took them to whatever court it was in America and said, this is the simulation you need to run, you know, and the top pilots at Boeing had done it, run it time and time again. And he said, let me do it and I will show you why, because they were covering it up. And it was. He, he exposed he it. He kicked their ass. Exactly. Their ass. And, that's and, that's, and, and, and he all showed that, up and, at the crash site. Yeah. None yes, of them had I mean, the guts to show up at the exactly. crash site. Exactly. Exactly. He was there. And just... I just think from a, a, a human being level, the fact that I was very lucky to grow up watching him do what he did, but it's something mesmerized and captivated me about him at the time. And I've, I've never, never learned anything else that's that otherwise me could be short and blunt. And I think possibly the, the best quote ever from him was when Rush came out and it was the inaugural Indian Grand Prix and it was um, uh, Eddie Jordan was doing the grid walk. And you know, there was a lot of Bollywood stuff going on and stuff, yeah? And that film had just come out. And in, Jordan interviewed somebody on the grid and turned, he said, and literally did the great segue. He just said, from Bollywood to Hollywood to Nicky Lauder. And he said, you've just, uh, he said, you've been a consultant on, on the, the film Rush. And he just went, yes. Because he hadn't actually asked him a question. He'd made a statement. It was typical Lauder, just, you know, economical with the words. And <laughs> it took him for a bit to, he said, um, so is it a good film kind of thing? And he's like, yes. <laughs> he hasn't, hasn't gotten to a point. Lad is just there going, yeah, why? And just don't forget also that Nicky Lauder was instrumental in getting Lewis Hamilton into Mercedes and you know his titles, just as an aside. Yes. Well, yeah, and he just would... got... Jordan just asked him, I thought was the, 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 a great question, but the answer was just so compelling. And he just said to him, he said, Nicky, he said, you've been to see, you've been to the, the Premier in Leicester Square, is there anything you would change? And he stopped and he looked at Eddie Jordan in his eye, and he did exactly what you mentioned a minute ago, um, um, Mr. Tarsi. You could see he almost welled up, which was not like Nicky Lauder. And he said, yes, just one thing. I'd have liked to have gone to the premiere with my friend James. 
And it was just like, okay, you got me. You got yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, can you just imagine those two sitting there with popcorn and a beer going, God, <laughs> do you remember her? Do you remember this? This was yeah. us. Oh, silly. We were silly buggers, weren't we? <laughs> yeah. That's exactly I, I just, right. I, that is a brilliant a, a comp- story. Just and that was that was my yeah. only problem with that film was is that those two were good friends. Yes, they were rivals, yes. but they were yes. good friends. They were they they and were they missed enemies. that bit, didn't they? And I know this will shock people, but I'm going to support uh, Peter in this <laughs> in this gate. Well, it's because, a new, it's a new year and it's a new well, world exactly. order. Well done, I finally converted you, Mister Roller. Exactly. <laughs> I think I think that Toto Wolf wouldn't be the big shot that he is were it not for Nicky Lauda whispering in his ear yeah. those oh, years yeah, okay. when he first yeah. was cutting his teeth, when he was still in the uh, formula one proverbial short pants. We, we have a, a program over here called, uh, called desert Island discs and um, uh, total wolf was a guest on it back in the summer. And you could get to choose your records and this and that kind of stuff and whatever it was. If you're on desert Island and, and Toto was on it and he was talking about louder, how instrumental he was and that uh, I'd forgotten how much Toto had raced and he was trying to get, he wanted to establish in the early days, he wanted to still have the lap record of a certain class, whatever, the Nürburgring, and decided to talk to, to Nicky about it. And even Toto explaining it was, he said he was explaining why he wanted to do it and it was important and this and whatever. He said, and Nicky looked at me and just went, Toto, why? Nobody cares. <laughs> Easy, really? Sounds that was, yeah. that was it. That. Yeah. 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 What, what did Nicky allow to do with all these F1 trophies? Nobody cares. He gave them to his local filling station guy in Austria and had them on display there, yeah? Because yeah. to him, they were utterly irrelevant. He'd won the race. The points is what mattered for the championship. So he gave them to them, give this guy. He kept them. I said, he polishes them. He keeps them. And he said, and he's got great car wash. He said, so I get a free car wash every month. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that's fantastic. I mean, and he was pretty... Pretty handy in a racing car as well, in a dangerous era. You're listening to the historic racing news radio show. Jim, you uh, you, you took the time to, to sit down with Patrick Peter. And uh, this uh, th- this is this is gold dust. And let's uh, let's listen to your your interview with Patrick Peter. Bonsoir, Patrick. Welcome to uh, Industry Race Week. Thank you. I can't think of a form of historic or vintage car racing that your group, Peter Otto, doesn't have his hands on. How, how did you find yourself bringing the business towards towards that genre of motorsport? Uh, I think we organize per uh, year. We organize around fifteen different events uh, with different type of events. You, you, I show you some uh, some racetrack event, uh, some rally. Uh, some um, sports event, some uh, regularity and uh, elegant rally. Uh, it's quite difficult. There is many events. The biggest one was uh, Le Mans Classic. I think you you you, you looked at the Le Mans Classic with the famous uh, Le Mans start, uh, etc., etc. But um, we 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 organize every year. We organize uh, six, seven races. Uh, on the racetrack. We organize every year the Tour Auto since uh, 30, 33 years. Uh, we organize uh, the Chantilly à Elegance every other year, one year Le Mans Classic and one year Chantilly. 
And uh, since two, three years, we organized Le, um, the Rallye des Princesses, just for the ladies. Le Mans Classic this year was the biggest it's ever been. Where do you go with that event now that it has grown so much and become really the crown jewel of vintage car racing? Um, we begin the Le Mans Classic in uh, 2002 with 30,000 spectators. This year it was uh, 235. Of course, it's completely different. Uh, the first one we had a 300 car, now it's 800 race car, and uh, we had uh, 9,000 club car. But I think the size is, of course, the size is important, but uh, what is the most important for me is the quality. The quality, uh, we are very happy because we have uh, we have drivers from everywhere in the world. Of course, from Europe, but, the, but we have many cars from US, for, uh, from uh, Argentina, from Hong Kong, from Australia, etc., etc. And I think uh, it's, I don't know if it's the biggest event in the world, but it's one of the biggest sure. And uh, we are very prone to, 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 to arrive on this level now. Um, it's difficult to, do, to tell you what we will do next time because uh, we just finished uh, this year and uh, we need some time. The next one will be in 25. But I'm sure we will uh, find new, new ideas. I think it's very important because like spectator, if you come one time, two times, three times, and every time it's the same, you, it's finished and uh, you know the event. And uh, we need to, 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 to provide new, new animation, new grid, new for, 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 for different, uh, for, the, for, for the parents, for the family, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's very important uh, to have new, new, new animation every time. Your Peter Otto organization runs events throughout the world. Do you have your eyes at all? on the U.S. market? Um, of course, we think about U.S. market. It's a very big market. Uh, and we will organize something uh, next year in, uh, in September in California. We will organize something in the, for the Rally des Princesses. It will be a small rally with uh, 50 cars, probably, uh, in California between Los Angeles and Napa Valley. But um, many times we think about to do something with the racetrack in um, in US, and it's quite difficult for us. It's quite difficult for us because the rules are not exactly the same in US and in the European market. Uh, you know, in the European market, we have the the rule is the appendix K from the FIA, and the cars are exactly the same between the Italy, France, uh, UK, Germany, etc., etc. And uh, in the uh, US, you have a different culture. You have a different culture. Uh, for, for you, it's not, very, it's not so important if you find a, a Ford engine on a, on a, in, in a E-type Jaguar, for example. Uh, it's just an example, but uh, you can change, etc., etc. In, uh, in Europe, we are very strict with the, the originality of the car. And uh, it's difficult to mix 
uh, European uh, driver and uh, US driver because the rule is not the same and uh, they don't understand. Of course, when when European people go in US, they take the same rule, etc., etc. But uh, for the American people, when they come in, we have many uh, American drivers in, uh, in our race. They use absolutely the FIO. How would, if, if let's say I had a, a, a 917 that I wanted to bring to one of your events, uh, how would I go about doing that? No, it's easy. You come, no problem. We have different races. <laughs> <of that. laughs> <laughs> no, no, but uh, 917, uh, we have uh, probably uh, six, you know, we, are, we have period, we have six uh, events in our racetrack, and uh, in each event we have, I think, uh, we have nine different grids, and we have one grid for the 917 everywhere, and uh, you are very welcome with your 917, no problem. But I wish, to be, to I, wish I had a 917, I would join you. <laughs> no, but to be clear, to be clear, normally when American people arrive for one race, they don't come for one race. They come from one season, and the car stay in Europe, and uh, they go and back uh, many times in the in the season. Are there any other new events in Europe that you can uh, tell us about for for twenty twenty four? For twenty twenty four, yes, or beyond. Have... No, we have uh, uh, one event. Uh, we organize a concours, Chantilly, Art Elegance, Richard Mill. We organize that since uh, uh, 2014. And uh, the concours, the level of the concours is, the perception of the concours is different in Europe and in uh, in US. For many US collectors, the concours is really the top. Uh, of course, uh, Pebble, uh, Pebble Beach, but also Amelia Island, etc., etc. In Europe, it's different. Many collectors prefer the race and the rally, etc., and it's more difficult to attract the collector in the in the concours. Um, but um, we have a good uh, awareness now with uh, with Chantilly. Clearly. The location is absolutely fantastic. It's very nice, etc. We have many animation, uh, but um, many many car makers ask us to to extend the event. Uh, until now, it was just uh, it was just a concours. Now, during three days before, it will be also um, a motor show, a motor show, but uh, for the business, for the car maker. Uh, because uh, all the motor show in Europe uh, uh, stop, uh, uh, the, the, the Frankfurt stop uh, some years ago, uh, Mention is not in very good condition, etc. Geneva uh, in February, we don't know exactly, etc. And we want to organize a motor show just for very high level brand uh, for. Uh, the, 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 the minimum level will be uh, Audi, BMW, Mercedes, and uh, after all the Ferrari, Pagani, Bugatti, etc., etc. And the target is to have uh, there is probably uh, 25, 30 different brands like that. And uh, our target for the first year is to have uh, uh, around uh, 12, uh, 15 uh, brands. And uh, besides Chantilly, we have. Um, we have a race track in Mortfontaine, 
and uh, they can go with the customer uh, to try the car, which is very important with this type of car, because you can buy a car by internet, uh, it's a small car for the city, etc. But when you buy a Ferrari or Bugatti, you want to try it, to drive it. This is always, this, this is like asking a parent if they have a favorite child, which they will never say that they do, if they're, uh, <laughs> especially if their children are listening. Um, do you have a particular type of event that you like better, whether it be a, a track event or one of your elegant rallies or one of your historic rallies? Which, which kind of events do you, Patrick Peter, prefer? Always the next one, always the next one. <laughs> no, because, you, you know, I, I like the rally, I like the, I like the race track, etc. Uh, of course, an event like Le Mans Classic is something very special, it's fantastic. Uh, and uh, you imagine for a collector to be in your car during the night on the straight, on the, you know, the straight line, it's something, it's a dream, it's a dream. But, um, there is many things to imagine, and uh, for me, uh, uh, I always think to find something new. Uh, and uh, I will not tell you something today because uh, we have to think about that again, etc., etc. But uh, I, I like to 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 imagine something new. Well, I can I can tell you as a as a part time. Uh, commentator that the, the two times that I was able to do TV commentary for Lamont Classic were two two highlights of, of, of my life. That is truly a special event and it should be on any motoring enthusiast bucket list, as we would say here in America. <laughs> the vintage racing world, as technology is moving forward, we're seeing cars that are now, as I used the example of the Porsche 917 earlier, you could, with the right amount of money and the right wherewithal, you could go and you could buy a, a vintage race car. Nowadays, with the computer technology and the engineering that is going into things like the Peugeot 908s and the Audi R8s and the R15s and the R10s, um, do you see that being a challenge to the grids moving forward, or will will those cars just not enter the vintage market because of that engineering challenge? Mm, it's more and more difficult to use the, 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 the very modern car. It's more it's, it's more and more difficult. To, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Clearly, uh, the, the, the most modern grid now with us uh, stopped in uh, 2010 for the GT and 2005 for the for the prototype. But you know, in the past, in 10 years ago, I organized modern race. I organized many modern race. I organized uh, Le Mans, Le Mans series, which is the WEC now, etc. And of course, when you look a car like a Peugeot 908 or something like that, uh, before to start, you need uh, five engineers, uh, five computers, and uh, 30 or 45 minutes, etc. And it's more and more difficult. And uh, for me, I'm not sure it's my cup of tea. 
uh, I don't know. And uh, I don't know. We, we need to have more modern car because we want to attract more uh, young uh, spectators. And I think it's very important. Uh, but this type of car, after around 2000, uh, there is a lot of electronic. Uh, it will be probably difficult to, to find spare parts in the uh, in 10 years or 20 years for the for, for this car. Clearly, I'm not very comfortable with your question for that. <laughs> I guess the other challenge uh, besides that technology would be sustainability and how the world marketplace is moving towards electric cars and more sustainable. How do you think vintage uh, motorsports and historic motorsports fits into that, to that landscape? I'm quite optimist. I'm quite optimist because I think, you know, we have ecological problem like everybody, et cetera, et cetera and uh, in all the country. But uh, for example, in Le Mans Classic, we have 30% of the grid who rests with uh, synthetic fuel. With, uh, we provide Haramco fuel, uh, which is synthetic fuel. And uh, we, with uh, probably less 75% uh, of the emission. And uh, I think uh, with that, of course, ecologists want always more, 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 more. But I think with that, it's a good answer. After, I'm sure uh, the condition for, to, 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 to drive in the, in the traffic, etc., is more and more difficult. You have speed limit everywhere. You have a lot of problem. And the car are not very fun to, to drive. Uh, you have help for everything, etc., etc. And I'm sure you will have always a driver who like to drive, just to drive. And uh, I think the, the historic car has a good, uh, good future. Uh, you know, I take always an example. In, uh, in uh, 1800, uh, to go from uh, France to US, uh, you need a sailboat. Uh, a sailboat, uh, there is not necessity to have a sailboat now. But uh, the harbor are full everywhere, and you have uh, sailboat lover everywhere. And I'm sure it will be the same with, uh, with with the historic car. I'm sure. I guess in in closing here, as we only have a couple minutes left, um, I'd like to go back. We, we touched briefly on the uh, your, your princess event that you're going to be holding uh, next September. Uh, in 2024, um, this event will run from up to Napa. You said 50 cars. Um, what if, if someone wants to become involved in that event? How would they go about doing that? Uh, it's easy. Uh, it's easy. We have a, uh, the, 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 the website of the company, Peter Auto, etc., and there is all the information. And uh, I'm not sure it should be open today, but uh, in any case, it will be that it will be done uh, before the end of the year. 
And but it's just for the ladies. It's just for the ladies. And I can tell you, it's very good to organize something for the ladies because uh, they are very more. They are very. It's easier as a, as a man, you know. They don't have ego, and uh, when a man is uh, on the podium, he's very happy. But when he's not on, a, on the podium, it's because the mechanics, it's because the car, it's because uh, the neighbor, etc., etc. And with the ladies, they are happy on the podium. And uh, when they are not on the podium, they say, "Okay, I need to improve me, and uh, it will be better next year, etc." And clearly, it's very, very good. Are, are there any qualifications or is this a fairly open event? I mean, is there a, uh, do you have to have a certain license requirement or you just have to have the right kind of car and, and, and the want to, as we would say here in America? No, we want, uh, we, 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 we show you a good car because we, we need different type of car, et cetera. And after, uh, we don't need a champion. We need something, uh, somebody uh, with uh, with fun. Uh, no, 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 no selection, no selection. Well, I I hardly look forward to to that event, and and thank you for taking time out of your your busy day to join us here at Industry Race Week. And now for something completely different, opinion and bombast. It is time to find out who will rule the quarters of power. Right. And the task I have set for this first round of 2024 is to nominate Ayrton Senna's greatest race. Um, could go anywhere, this one. So uh, I'm just going to go straight in. PJ, would you like to open the batting? Oh, gosh, he always gets to go first. And, and he kills us with his research. This is going to oh. be a teacher's pet, Jim. Teacher's pet. Oh. You build, build me up, knock me down, guys. Oh, this is where I go very every quiet. Time. Right. <laughs> if everybody's ready, I'll begin. Are, we, are you sitting comfortably? Yes, very much so. Right. Now, I'm, I'm going to go back to 1984. I suspect I won't be the only person going to 94, but we'll see about that. Did Senna's you say first... 94 or 84? 84. Did I say 94? You did say yes. Yeah. yeah. 84. There we go. Don't, don't, don't stress me. The so first season of Formula One. And basically, I'm going to a moment when he just four Grand Prix in the Tolman TG183B under his belt. Two sixth place finishes. One did not qualify. There's a Wait a minute. We can't have picked the same one. No, we haven't. I hope okay. not. Right. Still, he's still I'm, on his I'm, intro. He's on his intro, Jim. You've got carry on, carry on. Hey, hey, hey. I apologize. Context. It's all about context. <laughs> and I'm going to a, to a race on May the 12th that saw him take on the toast, a host of top drivers and really announce his arrival on the world stage. And basically, we've already mentioned it. The, the full Nordschleife layout had not been used for Grand Prix racing since that 1976 Nicky Lauda crash that you mentioned, Peter. But work had begun in 82 on a new shorter circuit that incorporated the start-finish section of the, the mighty old track. And that was finished in early 84. And the circuit was granted that year's European Grand Prix. If you remember the European Grand Prix, it's like that floating race, wasn't it, that wandered around different round Europe. And uh, even, I think, in fact, Donington in 93 was the European Grand Prix, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. But, uh, and they decided to open the circuit in style with a race featuring some of the greatest names in motorsport all competing in identical cars. 
Now, the cars were to be the new Mercedes 190E with a 2.3 litre 16 valve engine tuned, tuned and tweaked by Cosworth. Tuned, I struggle with that one. Tuned and tweaked by Cosworth with uh, Mercedes happy to supply the cars, knowing the attention the race would receive and essentially the boost it would give to their new car, which was their first venture back into performance saloons for a long, long time. There was also the handy fact that for many, many years, Mercedes actually ran a scheme where a Formula One driver could get a Mercedes at a very, very good discount. And uh, it was basically a trade-off. You know, they wanted these people to be seen driving their cars. And uh, there was a lot of goodwill from a lot of drivers towards the German manufacturer. And what they did, they actually invited all 14 living Formula One champions to the race, of which nine would actually compete. Emerson Fittipaldi and Mario Andretti couldn't make it because it clashed with Indianapolis qualifying. Jackie Stewart, mentioned before, pragmatic, stepped back from racing and wasn't going to be restarting. And my heart flutters. Juan Manuel Fangio declined, basically because he was 72 at that point. uh, But he did come to the event as a Mercedes ambassador. And the other person who didn't race of all the former champions was actually the reigning champion, Nelson Piquet, who just wasn't interested, really. <laughs> so <laughs> they had Jack Brabham, Phil Hill, John Surtees, Denny Holm, Nicky Lauda. Nicky Lauda, eh? We'll come back to him. James Hunt, Jody Schechter, Alan Jones and Keki Rosberg, joined by F1 race winners such as Sterling Moss, Carlos Reutemann, John Watson, Alan Prost, Jacques Lafitte, Elio De Angelis. And Mercedes actually also invited some sports car stars, including Hans Hermann, and one of my favourite drivers, Klaus Ludwig. Now, not on the original shortlist was a certain Ayrton Senna. And frankly, why would he be? Formula One rookie and really just the British Formula Three title on his CV. But, and my notes here say that I'm supposed to say at this point, I enjoy a good but, but I realised how that could sound very, very wrong. So I'm going to move on show. Very Different quickly. show. Different show. <laughs> yeah. Nine o'clock. <laughs> but Ayrton <laughs> <had> struck... <laughs> I really wish I hadn't gone down that road. But Ayrton still... <laughs> struck up a friendship with Gerd Kramer of Mercedes during his championship F3 season. I never actually got could find out quite how that happened because it seems a little unlikely. Maybe that's a question one day we could throw at Dick Bennett so we can get Dick on here. He maybe yes. know that one. So, but no, he struck up a friendship with Gerd, Gerd Kramer, and you know, essentially, actually reigned close for his whole life. So when Fittipaldi could not make it, Kramer, who was actually doing all the organising for uh, Mercedes, was able to squeeze a few, ar- twist a few arms and uh, squeeze Senna onto the grid. I was successful in organising the Royal Champions and Nürburgring winners, said Kramer. But he said, I was able to insist that I could invite Ayrton instead of Emerson Fittipaldi. So you know, maybe the Brazilian link was what he played on, but it paid off for Senna. Now, the travel drivers obviously came from all over the place and all flew into Frankfurt Airport. And Kramer arranged for Senna to get a lift to the circuit from Alan Prost, whose flight landed 15 minutes before seven, before Senna's. Now, we, we talk about this a lot, but if you had a time machine, would you not want to sit in the back of that car for the journey to the circuit? Well, they These weren't were the, enemies yet, though. They, they hadn't met before. This was the first time they ever met. And Prost remembers him during the journey as very pleasant. I think that was an opinion destined not to last. But um, there was a strong social element to, element to the weekend amongst the drivers, and some were certainly taking it seriously on track. And uh, after qualifying, it was Prost on pole, Reutemann second, Senna third, but also on the front row, three abreast across the front row. And uh, in some ways, this was not surprising, really, with Prost and Senna. Certainly, I think the two drivers there, something to prove. Prost was regarded as a world champion to be, 
And Senna was the new kid on his block. And I think, as we always have seen with Senna, determined to make his mark. And uh, Prost actually commented, commented much later that Senna was not happy to be beaten to pole. He didn't like it, said Prest. He didn't talk to me anymore, which at the time I thought was quite funny. So it was wet on race day, which some drivers really didn't like because the 190E's high-tech ABS system was far less effective. And, uh, of course, it was perfect centre weather. And, uh, you know, just look what happened at Monaco just a few weeks later. Now, the race was on German TV. But they missed the start because the speech that they were covering from a local German politician overran. So they actually missed the opening laps, which is a bit of a shame because Prost actually led away. But within half a lap, he was pushed wide by a determined Senna. Who, and then Prost rejoined to clash with De Angelis and ended up the at the back of the began. field. Yes. We'll come back to that as well. Prost was left less than amused, putting it politely, something he would get very used to in his interactions with Senna over the next 10 years. Now, let's be honest here. It has to be said there were differing approaches to the race, with some drivers not taking it quite as seriously as those pushing hard at the front. John Surtees, one of the races, commented, uh, Reutemann was serious. He had several sets of spare tyres. Ayrton was always pushing all over the road. James Hunt was using half the infield to cut corners, while Alan Jones was another to go dirt tracking. There was one race for those of us using the circuit and another for those cutting the corners. One driver not chasing the podium finish was good old Hans Herman, who uh, apparently agree- had agreed to buy his car after the race, so being very, very careful with it. Now, <laughs> Senna took the win from Lauda, Lauda up from 14th on the grid, so a good drive from Nicky Lauda. And it was the first time the Brazilian driver really came to prominence, having built a lot of well-known names in the same machinery in a race that actually had a very high profile at the time. And, uh, of course, some of those names were actually trying very hard. And, uh, you know, he impressed many people. Surtees was one who was impressed. He said, for me, the most interesting thing was seeing Senna for the first time and thinking there's something special going on there. And Jack Brabham said, you know, he won and it was a difficult race in that rain. And I thought that guy's really going somewhere. And and Moss was another. He said from that moment on, for me, he just continued to rise until he was only equaled, in my opinion, by Fangio. See how this is all tying together nicely as a program. It's fantastic, isn't it? Like we planned this. (laughs) Now, fantastic. In a race that really broke Senna as someone special, but uh, also just worth mentioning, that wasn't actually Senna's only race on the new Nürburgring that year. At the end of the season, there was the uh, European GP in October, but that ended as, as just a lap after contact with another car. But he did take part in a sports car race there in July, July driving a Yerst Porsche 956 and uh, chassis 104 for those of us that it matters, and it matters to me a lot, <laughs> in the 1,000-kilometre race, sharing it with Henri Pescarola and Stefan Johansson. Now, it wasn't a great result. They punctured early on, and then the car was in, pit, in the pits for many laps with a clutch problem. But they finished eighth, and Santa took the challenge, his only endurance race in his entire career, with his usual focus and fastidious approach reportedly after the race, sitting down with the team to go through a list of 30 suggestions on how Yerst Racing could improve their car. He did actually set the fastest race up. Now, this is Yerst Racing. They'd won Le Mans a month before with their sister chassis, 117, the 956, the famous double winner, admittedly with no works opposition. And then they won it again the next year with, with 117. You wonder how many of Senna's suggestions made it onto the 1985 Yerst 956, which did beat the mighty Rothmans Porsches. And uh, a few interesting endpoints. The top brass at Mercedes had earmarked the car that won for a place in their museum. And they wanted it to be one of the big names. They were really keen on Watson and Reutemann or Hunt, apparently. And uh, Greg Kramer had to assure them that the Senna name would finally would, would mean something very soon. 
and he was proved right. So Senna's car went to the museum. Lauda's car also stayed as a race car. But the others were converted back to road cars and just sold off. Fantastic. You do actually wonder if any of the 190s ease on the roads today, you know, are are still out there from the race. You know, I'm not sure there could be huge numbers out there. But did that, you know, are there still survivors of those 12 laps around the Nürburgring still out there? And and they could be worth tracking down as Lauda's car was actually sold by Sotheby's in October this year for £284,000. And finally... So Senna and Prost clashed on the first lap of the Nürburgring race to give Senna the result he wanted. Let's fast forward to Suzuka in 1990. And another first lap clash. Hold on. Hold on. This was about his best race, and you've now mentioned three races. I'm, I, I'm going for the one in the white Mercedes one. I'm also hedging my bets. Yeah. And frankly, I'm not here to See what I'm I deal with every entertain. week, guys. See what I deal with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, you know, that okay, first well, lap. Carry on. We're going to move you on. Move you on. Oh, no, no, let him finish. Let him finish. That no, no, no. Yeah. All, I, all I wanted later. to say was that first lap clash gave Senna the world title he'd wanted in 1990s. Maybe Prost should have known what was in store, thinking back what happened to 1984. Gee, all right. That's a valid point. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Yeah. I apologize. You're listening to the historic racing news radio show. Nick, what, <laughs> if, uh, what have you got? What's, uh, what's your choice for Ayrton Senna's um, greatest race? It's got to be Brazil 1991, March, actually, 1991, um, where Senna put it on pole. It was unusual, wasn't it, for it, for Interlagos to be run so early in March? Yes. Yeah, yeah you're right. Mm-hmm. It's strange, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, he put it on pole position, led into the first corner. He'd always wanted to win his home Grand Prix. So there was a lot of pressure on McLaren, on him. He wanted to win this race. So typical Senna style, head down, led into the first corner, as I say. Nice lead, controlling it comfortably. Um, I believe Patrese was was catching him. Um, With about four laps to go, he got stuck in sixth gear. And for the rest of those laps, he just hung on. And then it started to rain. And I don't know if you remember when the... Um, it started to rain. He was pointing to the sky as he was coming past the um, the, the line just to warn them that it was raining and possibly cut the Grand Prix short. But did he know he was already stuck in sixth gear and would he make the uh, end of the GP? He did. He won it. And then after that, the, uh, the car broke down on the slowing down lap and uh, he couldn't get out the car. And there's, there's great footage of him struggling. And he had neck spasms, shoulder spasms. We've spoken about how physical these cars are. Um, so that was probably a race that was an hour and a half, two hours possibly. And, um, yeah, he won it. And he, he actually said he, he God won that race for him because he was managing to, to hang on and, and get the car to the finish. And he had a out-of-body experience. And he thanked him very much for the help. So that's wow. incredible. That's a that's a good one. I didn't know any of that. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's good. Thank you very much indeed, Nick, for that's that right. one. Uh, Jim, I think it's your turn now. Ah, well, thank you. I've just <sighs> chosen one race, and it was two weeks after Paul's race. It was, of course, the nineteen eighty four Monaco Grand Prix, because while he may have gotten some attention in. Paul's little one-make media extravaganza. <laughs> this 
race was one of the triple crown. This is one of the greatest events, you know, with the Indy 500, the 24 hours of Ma and Monaco for you to make your splash here. And I use that word advisedly um, that really cemented him as a star of the future. And it was, I think probably his greatest performance. He would have won the race if it wasn't for some sketchy race officiating, which I'll get into later. And perhaps he learned in that, in that, uh, in that uh, event, something that Nick uh, just made mention of, but but to understand why I picked this uh, race and not Donington or, or Brazil as Nick did or one of the other great performances of his career, it, there are some circumstances that really make this race special, I think. He was coming off probably the most dominating season in the history of the British Formula Three, three championship with 14 wins in 20 races. He was probably one of the most sought-after young drivers looking to break into Formula One at the time. He had plenty of chances because of that. At the end of 1983, he had tested with Williams, McLaren, Lotus, Brabham, and Tolman. And this is when politics and sponsorship uh, really started to influence his career. Peter War at Lotus, Ron Dennis at McLaren, and Bernie Ecclestone all offered him testing deals in 84 as they didn't have an open seat at the time. War did try to get rid of Nigel Mansell to make room for the Brazilian. But the John Player special folks said, no, 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 we're not having that, as they were insisting on a, on a British driver. Ecclestone uh, saw the opening, and he wanted to add Senna in the second seat alongside fellow Brazilian Nelson Piquet, the defending world champion. But even Bernie bent to the whims of sponsors, which I know that surprises everyone, because Parmalat, was his sponsor and the Italian dairy concern didn't want another Brazilian. They wanted an Italian driver. So ultimately that seat was shared by brothers Teo and Corrado Fabi. So it was kind of a game of musical chairs. And when the music stopped, the only seat left for Senna was at Tolman because Derek Warwick had vacated that seat to move on to Renault. And all of Senna's, I mean, picking greatest, Senna's greatest drive is like almost like picking your favorite child or for Nick, picking his, his favorite Formula One car. It's, it's, <laughs> there are so many of them, it's, it's virtually impossible to do. But I would submit that one of the reasons this race was his best is because he wasn't in frontline equipment. He wasn't in the, the McLaren of the day or the, or the Williams, you know, the top class cars. He was in a Tolman with a brand new chassis, the Rory Byrne, Pat Simmons designed TG 184. And this was the height of the turbo era, remember? And the Michelin Goodyear Pirelli tire war was raging. The, the, the Tolman was powered by uh, Brian Hart's very compact uh, 415T engine that was underpowered compared to the Tag Porsche and the BMW and the Renault engines. And the team, when Senna signed, was actually on Pirelli tires, which were the worst tires of all at the time. And the team of the three, you know, Michelin, Goodyear, and Pirelli. And the team was able, because of Senna's arrival, to actually 
come to uh, a deal with Michelin. So they did switch to Michelin tires for 1984. As Paul said earlier, the uh, early season results were were limited at best. He had uh, two DNFs, even that did not qualify at San Marino because of technical issues with the car and, and that sort of stuff. But he did have two sixth-place finishes, so he had scored points because back then, you know, the point system was uh, – Sixth place, you got one point. And round six of the championship was the iconic Monaco Grand Prix. Senna, as has kind of been the norm for the season, qualified mid-pack, 13th place. But race day dawned as, uh, I think Paul said, in typical Senna weather, or maybe it was Nick, one of them ahead of me, it was a downpour. And it was awful. And it rained hard all day. Uh, legendary Jackie Ix, who we'll talk about later, the man who had finished second to Jean-Pierre Beltois at Monaco the last time the weather was this horrendous in 1972 was the race steward. And here's a great trivia fact for you. The race was delayed. Now, why do you think the race was delayed? Any takers on that one? Because of the rain? Kind of, but... Anyone? Class? Anyone? No, no. Can't think of well, anymore. the circuit was so wet, and the area under the Lowe's Hope, hair, under the Lowe's Hotel, the tunnel, was bone dry. And that was the fastest part of the racetrack. And let's go back to our conversations earlier in the show about Nicky Lauda. He and the other drivers got together and said, that isn't cricket. That's not going to work. We're going to be going too fast by the time we come out of the tunnel to hit those wet conditions. So they had to delay the race so they could use fire hoses to wet down the tunnel to the close to the same degree that the circuit was wet while it was raining. I did not know that. So the race was delayed to add more water to the circuit. You couldn't, you couldn't make this oh. stuff up, could you? No. Don't, don't, don't wait no. for the rest to dry out. Make the other bit wet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they, I think they knew it wasn't going to dry out that day because the weather yeah. had been socked in for the day. So it, the race was actually start, started in conditions that today these these guys would, you know, they would refuse to race. Um, and they finally decided after the conditions they went out and tested the track everything was fine it was still a downpour when the green light released the field up the hill alan prost and his tag porsche powered mclaren led the way chased by nigel mansell in the lotus Renault. senna started his move to the front with the help of uh, the aforementioned warwick and patrick tambay and andre de Cesaris, who took themselves all out on the first lap at sandavot and the world watched uh, the race via a very technically challenged telecast because of the weather. You could hardly see the cars on the cameras for the mist. Uh, For those in the UK, uh, the broadcast was, you got to listen to the complaints of James Hunt and a very frustrated and confused Murray Walker uh, because they kept losing pictures in the booth. And you can go on YouTube and watch the whole BBC broadcast of the race and you know, Hunt is like, well, we've lost our pictures again. And I just, you know, I just don't know what to tell you. And poor Murray was trying to was trying to carry on. And by lap seven, Senna had begun his charge. Uh, he was chasing down uh, 
former world champion Rosberg in the Williams. It took him five laps to dispatch Rosberg. And then a four, further four laps later, he caught and passed Rennie Arnoux in the Ferrari. Meanwhile, at the front, Mansell had passed Prost for the lead. But Arnage couldn't enjoy the prosperity for more than five laps before he threw it into the guardrail going up the hill to Casino Square. That put Prost back out front, chased by his McLaren teammate, Nicky Lauda, and a charging Senna, who is now, because of that attrition, moved into third. He was fourth when he passed Arnoux. It only took him took Senna three laps to pass Lauda in a pass that Hunt thought was one of the most daring he had ever seen because he'd gotten his video back in his monitor. Going into <laughs> Sandoval, he basically Senna went around the outside of Lauda on the front straightaway, which really isn't a straightaway. It's a it's a big sweeping right hand turn. So he went around the left hand side of Lauda, thus had the in had the inside position for the first part of Sandoval, and then. He dispatched uh, Lauda and was now in second place, 34 seconds behind Prost. Now, over the next 11 laps, Prost, who uh, was starting to have brake trouble. Now, shortly after, I, I, I've left one fact out here. Shortly after Senna passed uh, Lauda, Lauda spun off at Casino Square because of brake trouble. Well, apparently Prost was having similar brake troubles with his McLaren. And over the next 11 laps, he was gesticulating to the officials every time he went by start finish that conditions were just too horrendous, while Senna was closing at a rate of more than two seconds a lap. Finally, after 32 laps, Ix relented to Prost's pleas once Senna had closed within about five seconds of the race leader and he put the red flag out with the checkered flag at one hour and one minute. So remember back in those days, well, still today it's a two hour time limit and they knew with, when they started the race that they wouldn't get all the laps completed, but it would be a two hour race. So as soon as it got to halfway, X threw the checkered flag and red flag and Prost won the race officially by about seven seconds. Now, Tolman and many Senna fans and Senna himself were sure the fix was in. Uh, conspiracy theories that would have made the uh, American media proud abounded. Uh, first, it was because Prost was French. Then uh, it was because Ix, who was at the zenith of his great contracting career at Porsche, who supplied the engines for McLaren, dropped the flag so that Porsche would win. All of these Reasons were given uh, by the detractors of the decision. This was the first decision to actually go against Senna in favor of Prost, Prost which really started that rivalry. Again, uh, going back to what uh, what Paul said, uh, it, 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 it actually started uh, probably at the Nürburgring, and then it was fostered hmm. even more here, and it really grew into, uh, unlike Lauda and Hunt, into real animosity so to me uh today this race probably wouldn't even have been run and crazy conspiracies aside most do agree that it was probably a good decision to stop the race uh, when they did uh, it would have been senna's first formula one win had he been able to do it and he would have done it in very much inferior equipment and i believe that's why that was his best drive ever 
Thank you, Jim. A uh, a very well made case there. Thank you very much indeed. And, uh... a, a well made case, and I have to admit, I think like all of us, I didn't know that story about the tunnel. But bizarrely, three years earlier, the exact opposite happened at the Monaco Grand Prix, didn't it? The race was delayed for an hour because the tunnel was the only wet bit of the track. Yes. Because right. there was a fire in the Lowe's Hotel That's and right. the water used to put it out ran through the roof of the tunnel and made that bit of the track wet. Yep. I, I, you know, I, I had the other, the, forgotten that. Yeah, the other irony that I thought, though, was that, that Ix had finished second to Beltois in 72 under conditions that all of the railbirds, and if you go and you, you can find a film of it on YouTube, the conditions were were horrendous, but it's it's worth going and watching the the eighty four YouTube coverage that you can find on on uh, uh, from the BBC and and listen to to James whinge on about the monitors and and everything else and just <laughs> yeah <laughs> and just the, the pictures were just uh, at the same time now the American broadcast was on Wide World the American uh, anthology show Wide World of Sports and it was edited down. Um, it didn't air live. It edited down and aired Saturday afternoon. So what we saw in the States was a very sanitized version uh, and shortened version of the race. But the pictures were, um, were, were, were the same pictures used. They were just, they were just edited down and it was, it was a nasty, nasty day. You're listening to the Racing News Radio Show. Peter what if, uh, what have you chosen? Well, have we got any time left after those two um, uh, box sets and those two? That's why I kept mine short. Come on, yeah, me, me, you and me both. Player, Nick. I, I can't, I, I can't, can't go into that level of depth. But um, uh, I have chosen Monaco as well. But I'm it shows Monaco. I'm retired and you're not. I have time on my <laughs> well, well, you, you said it. Um, uh, I'm going to choose Monaco '92 which is the other end of, uh, of Senna's career. Yeah. Um, at this point, it's the, the sixth round of the uh, 92 championship. Uh, we've had South Africa, Mexico and Brazil and the all-conquering Williams uh, FW14B, the fully active car in the hands of particularly Mansell and Betrezzi. Uh Betrezzi was never a bad Formula One driver, um, but Mansell, it just suited him completely. And they'd completed a trio of one twos already at this point bear in mind that senna's reigning world champion at this point and has also uh, won monaco three times already by this stage but he's in a substandard in his opinion uh mclaren and we've heard already from mr jerd in his very early days of his career how um how he had a long list of cars uh, faults for cars etc if he thought they could be improved so you can imagine what he thought of as being uh, a three-time world champion driving a mclaren that was not capable of matching everything else hence the wanting to get himself into a um into a williams which he wanted to do for 93 by the way but uh, i think it was nigel roebuck that said the only thing that sent uh, prosted wrong in that year was get his name under contract at Williams before Senna did, which is why he didn't <laughs> arrive till '94. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure it was Nigel Roebuck said that. Mm. So you, you go into this race, and uh, of course Mansell just yeah puts it on pole uh, and disappears. Oh, sorry, because we've had the we've had those are the first three races. The uh, fifth race in um, uh, Spain, Mansell's won that one as well. Yeah, uh, with uh, somebody called um, I can't remember his name properly. Michael Schumacher was second apparently <laughs> in 1992. Remember him? Uh, San Marino, a one-two again. So we get to Monaco, yeah? It's a 78-lap race. At this point, 
Mansell's leading the driver championship by 24 points already and the constructors for Williams by 74 points, yeah? Uh, of course, he just disappears off up the road, doesn't he? Until lap 60, when they thought it was suspected puncture to start with, it turns out to be a loose wheel nut. Um, and that just makes you just, just think. Normally, there's a phrase Nick will know very familiar with that. Uh, us in, in the sort of drove get to drive cars that the, you know, is the, the loose nut behind the wheel is the usually the most dangerous <laughs> element in a racing car. Um, this one's on the outside still, so not ideal in a Grand Prix car, but hey, it's only Monaco, so you're not going that quickly, are you? Yeah, you can uh, uh, run off, you? you'll be fine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, just get, get over it. And, yes. you know, as, as I was reminded once, and Nick's probably heard this before, well, I've heard that once before, as in, just do your job. Oh, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that one. Right out of the movie before, Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah no, I've, I've had it said to me on the radio, but there you go. Um, so he has to pit, and of course, he's then about onto fresh tyres, and Senna is now leading, and he is 5.2 seconds behind Mansell. Mm-hmm. He closes that down to 1.9 seconds in two laps. Think about that. Yeah, that's how quick that car was. And this is why I think it's Senna's greatest race. Okay, Senna then does an absolutely virtuoso display of how to hold up somebody, but fairly and more importantly, legally and sportingly. And does not let Mansell bite. You mentioned about the 84 race, go and watch it on YouTube, other platforms are available. Um, But watch the this race of 92 and watch how Mansell is dodging, ducking, diving, trying to find every possible way past that McLaren, which is suddenly become incredibly wide on its worn tyres. And, and, <laughs> and that is a great, great clip to watch because isn't it you don't see isn't that it? anymore. You don't, you don't see them locking Exactly. Up, you don't see that anymore. Alongside but it's the thinking. The thinking. Backs. I'll, I'll oh, come back good. to that in a minute, Nick. There's one, one other thing on it. That even... Even Mansell said afterwards that he was aware that Senna had worked out where the Williams could get by. So on yeah. some, I'm going to say straights. You know, we laugh at what straights are on um, Monaco circuit. On the slightly more throttle parts of the circuit, shall we say, he wasn't owing. He was lifting off to make sure he was, he couldn't get into the corners ahead. And that's it. And the only time I've seen that done since was Alonso in Brazil this year on Perez on how mm. to, how to think differently. And I just think for that, I mean, the, the audio is completely valid. The, you know, the, the Monaco Grand Prix was extraordinary. It set the scene. 85 Estrell, his first win for Lotus in the wet. Phenomenal. Oh, that was brilliant. The, you know, I would love to see him drive a Group C car. I'd love to see that list of 30 complaints about the car as well. I'd love to see that. Um, unbelievable. But I just think that drive was, it was the drive of a champion. We could go, nobody's gone Monaco, uh, sorry, gone um, Donington 93, the obvious one, the European Grand mm. Prix, that opening mm. lap, extraordinary. But that was just pure talent. The Monaco 92 was a thinking. That was a world champion's drive. How to hold back something that you know already is absolutely unbeatable. But it's behind. He's got fresh tyres. And, of course, it gave um, Senna yet another win. And that was his that was his fifth, wasn't it? And then he went on to win another. He went in the following year as well, in 93. So that, that win actually matched the Graham Hill's record. And, of course, he went on, that was Mr. Monaco, he went on to win in 93 as well, taking the still standing all-time greatest number of wins at Monaco. I say Monaco 92. And, and I know this, again, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock folks here. 
Um, <laughs> it, it must be the new. It's, I didn't even make this New it's Year's new year. resolution. Uh, uh, We're only a few hours into. But the I new think year. the point that you make, and again, it goes back to to what we said about Stuart not getting enough credit for his courage and Lauda mm-hmm. for his for his brains. Uh, Senna never got enough credit for being. The kind of calculating he got credit for behind the wheel was already always in a pejorative sense in mm. that, you know, he took him out because he knew if he didn't finish, then he'd win. And, and that's yeah, as did Schumacher a bit as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's not who Senna was in a complete competitor. He no. was probably one of the most thoughtful. That's why he made the list of car of problems for the car. He was probably <laughs> one of the most thoughtful people in motorsports at the time and was probably one of the most cerebral drivers that ever sat behind the wheel of a, of a race car. And he doesn't get enough credit for that. He gets credit for being brazen and bossy and Kurt and all these other things that are typical of a great champion uh, in any sport because of what they go through. But he was so freaking smart. And he yeah. never got credit for it. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a valid point. And I, I think just going on from, from your point there, Jim, that it was Patrick Head who, when asked about the the nicest people he'd ever had driving Williams as uh, as works drivers, and he said, they're all bastards. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that that probably sums it up, you know, that to be at that level. Took one and no one. But that's a different well, yeah. conversation. <laughs> couldn't couldn't possibly comment on that. Uh, but it's interesting, isn't it, that if you talk about Senna, you know, people who are died in the wool Senna fans are very often the same people who criticise Michael Schumacher for his rough and tumble tactics. But, where did he learn it from? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And and that uh, if if it hadn't been for Senna's tactics, I think Formula One particularly, but racing in general would be very different today. And and uh, I don't know, I inevitably it's like like all inventions, for want of a better word, somebody would have invented it if Senna hadn't. You know, this thing of that we're going into this corner and if if you don't back off, we're both gonna crash is was was very much the Senna way. Um, and I think, I think Paul, there there was the, the Martin Brundle line from their '83 Titanic Formula Three battle. You know, yes. they were so far ahead; it was the third place man. And I thought Brundle just summed it up perfectly at that time. That said, Ayrton would place the car in a certain way that he left you to decide whether you had an accident or not. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> that, that was his closest rival. I mean, that that's that's Brundle. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and talking of... Here's your trivia question. Yeah. We've talked a couple of times about 1983 and how dominant Senna was. Mm -hmm. Martin Brundle defeated him. Who was the other driver to win a race that season? There was only one other driver. Don't Um, look it up. Calvin Fish? I guess, is it? It is Fish. Yes, Fish, Fish, isn't it? Yeah. Calvin Fish. Was was he third in in the championship as well? I think he was. He was third or fourth. Yeah. I'd have to look that up. But, yeah, he was third. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really chuffed about that, right? Because I don't know where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Google. Do you know what? I have, I have just looked. Well, I worked, with, massive, I worked with him here record. in America. I, I worked. record. It was Calvin Fish drove for David Price Racing, and it was Davy Jones who was third in the championship. That's right. He was yeah. a monkey. Right. Without, winning a, without winning a race. That's right. Yeah, exactly. But and Senna, 132 points. Brundle, 123 points. Davy Jones, third, 77. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Jones came back to the States and, and raced, and Calvin came over and yeah. raced for me Atlantic. And then I worked with him for many, 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 many years. Uh, on American television, as he was uh, the the lead analyst for most of the most of the IMSA stuff here in American Le Mans series and Grand Am stuff in the in the United States, and we always would, um, you know, at some point during the season, it would get dropped into a production meeting or something that Calvin Fish had in fact beaten Iron Senna in a straight up fight once, but only once. Jim, Jim, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw a tri- I'm going to throw a trivia back at you if you'll permit me, gentlemen. Which other American driver was also in the that eighty three Formula Three British Formula Three Championship? It was Davy Jones' I... teammate at Murray Taylor Racing. That's the clue I'm going to oh. give you. Um, Should we do countdown no. music, folks? I'm not going to get it right because um, I'm I was I'm always so focused on Davy and Calvin in that season. Go on. Um, Eric Lang. Oh wow, yeah. Oh, well, that's a goodness. boy. That's an American that, trivia no, question, anyway. That. I mean, there you go. Yeah, nobody. Nick, Nick Eric, Nick, Eric quietly disappeared after that season. You're listening to the historic racing news radio show. Nick, we've talked a lot about Monaco. Um, have, have you ever driven it in the wet? Yeah. Um, when was that? That was 2018, I think. In a shadow DN9, so it was oh. delayed because the the, oh. the rain was really bad. And um, it was a villager car, so that was uh, Regazzoni car, I think. Just, just say it again um, slower. Just say that. Say it again slower. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure why you yeah. said yeah. You know, yeah. I've raced the yeah, Monaco in the wet. This was brilliant <laughs> because um, no, it was the it, DF I, part that yes. DF no, oh, it, shadow. It, it oh. was yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, yeah, it was wet and it it was miserable and it was. It was really cool because I, I really liked it. And uh, so we, we could see the weather coming in and it's normally over that, that mountain. You can see it in yeah, yeah. it was wet. And uh, I think I qualified uh, fourth there, managed to get third off the line. Oh, and, I had an off uh, day, did you? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then actually, no, I did. I, I spooled off the line and then I managed to get third. In. I was racing a friend of mine, Michael Lyons, and we're, we're all on wets. And um, I could hear Michael just spinning up like mad. And I'm thinking, they're not going to last. Those wets are just going to fall apart. Because, as we've talked about the tunnel, the tunnel was bone dry. So you really had to nurse it. And uh, I managed to get Michael into third. And then for the last, it's brilliant. For the last, I think, six laps, I had um, an Arrows A3 on my, on my rear wing trying to get past and I placed the car everywhere and I managed to hold on to third. The wets, I remember coming past start finish line and the car was never in a straight line. The wets had gone and there's bits of rubber flying off. And yeah, I managed to, to hold on like anything uh, for third. And for me to get, to get on the, the, the podium at Monaco is a win. And that third was just the icing on the cake. It was just brilliant. It was, and the, I've, I've actually got those, the set of wets in my garage. I'll never, oh, yeah. Never <laughs> yeah, there was nothing left of them, and yeah, that's that's in the uh, in pass them on to the grandchildren. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was cool. Yeah, uh, which, again, I, you must have driven some, I mean, I know you've driven some very old cars at Monaco um, and up to what we what us old fogies will keep, consider fairly modern what any standouts or are they all standouts what at monaco yeah um probably my my favorite car i've ever driven the lotus 16 there that was great fun my favorite is the um lotus 77 just and i would say my last my last qualifying lap um at you know monaco last year was just fully lit and then I, I just got stuck in a bit of traffic. But that car was dancing. Through the swimming pool, it was just dancing. Just brilliant. Did you um, did you ever get to drive anything with, with a high airbox? Anything like the uh, the DN5 or any any of the no. high airbox cars? I have driven the DN5, but we used the – I raced that a lot as well. We used the, the low box on that. Surtees ah. um, TS9, that had a bit of a – Mm-hmm. They are cool. Those they do look good. Yeah, I just wondered if the what it was um, like to drive something with with that big old box up there in the air. Yeah, it's my favorite of era of the, it's my favorite yeah. era of the sport, and I just all of those the DN one, the DN because that was that was the American, you know, that was an an American car. Yeah. So for the, um, I did drive Hunt's Heskiff, and I think that was seventy five. Mm-hmm. Right, and that had their high airbox and yeah. the big nose on it. Yep. So, yeah, I did drive that, but that was only a test. Wow. Wow. That's uh, that's put us all in our place, I think. Um, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for that. Um, interesting stuff. I mean, there, there's some fascinating stuff there. The, the, can, can I just the, throw in a caveat, Paul? Sorry to you any further. Can, can we just remove Nick Padmore from the, the running note? Because he's just mentioned he's driven, he's driven James Hunt's Esker, Hesker, just on that basis. Just yeah. not fair. Everything, Sorry. So, so 39 Formula 1 cars, I don't mind. But that one, no. Yeah. I, I don't like that. Sorry, yeah, mate. Yeah. yeah, that was cool. That's, that's just bragging. Well. <laughs> yeah, get, your, get your coat, Padmore. Yeah. Red, that, red, 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 red line in the sand. Do not cross it. <laughs> okay, new red line in the sand. Do not cross it. If I remember right as well, that tub um, had been dented with a hammer so he could get his knees under the dash a little bit more comfortably. So, yeah, that's correct. So, it, um, yeah, that was really cool because I remember I was, I was, I'm a real anorak, so I had to get down in the tub and have a look. But, yeah, of course you They'd bash the bash the tub back, so it would give them a bit more room. There we go. Finish it oh. off on that one. <laughs> like the gurney, <laughs> like the fabulous. gurney bump, like the gurney bump in the GT40. That's awesome. Yeah, that yeah. is a fabulous yeah. story. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, th- I think looking at where we've been, um, eighty-four Nurburgring, the one ninety Merc that we had from Paul Jerd. Um, interesting, fabulous story. Um, whether it's his greatest race, Nick chose Brazil, nineteen ninety one, um, and yeah, I, I, things like him not being able to get out of the car because of his muscle spasms and and things. Presumably, in those days, there was no um, ship to shore radio. Uh, so it wouldn't have been this running commentary that we have now 
uh, from no, there, there was there yeah was, there would be radio there would be radio there, there not quite as much as it is now but there were definitely yeah, radios you, by then yeah they just weren't pussies whinging on about every little thing now, that was the word i was going to use earlier and i thought i thought i might get centered on that one so but you yeah. can hear him screaming on the uh slowing down lap can you yeah wow. obviously very excited about winning his home grand prix but you know in massive finally pain as well yeah yeah he did it wow um then we had jim picking 84 monaco um there's a name I'm going to throw in the mix here, Jim, and you might might be able to give us some some more views on that. And that is Stefan Beloff. Yes, Ooh. Stefan Beloff. Probably, maybe that was even even better. But unfortunately, his car was found to be underweight. Beloff was in the normally aspirated. Again, we talked about it being the height of the turbo era. He was in the normally aspirated Tyrrell, and came from dead last to finish third behind Prost and Senna. But the car after post-race tech was found to be underweight. And so he was disqualified and ended up last, but certainly he stormed through the field. Uh, and again, with the wet conditions, the underpower, that was the one time all season that the Terrell being underpowered was a benefit and and many people thought that uh, the heart engine being a little bit under power was a help to Senna as well. But certainly it wasn't as underpowered as the normally aspirated Cosworth in the in the Tyrrell. So, um, yeah, he 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 ended up third in that race uh, and that, too, uh, brought him to to the to the forefront. And do you think it was a fix? Uh, pers- no, personally, I, I no, don't. Think it, I, I don't think it was. I don't. I agree with you. I don't think I, it was. I, I'd like to think that sometimes, but I don't think. I mean, it was a. It was a. It was a fix in the fact that there are just too many times in the history of French motorsports when the rules have been tweaked or this was done, but the conditions were horrendous. Uh, like I say. Yeah. It um, th- today the race wouldn't even have been run. They'd have they'd have figured out a way to run it on Monday or something. But I mean, um, Eeks was a complete amateur compared to Michael Massey. I mean, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, harsh, yeah. exactly. <laughs> accurate though, accurate. And, and can, you imagine, can you imagine trying to control that? The amount of power those cars had in mm. those conditions. Yeah, proper. Yeah, no traction control, nothing. So there you go. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there Survive. was a difference between the guys yeah. on Michelin's and the guys yeah. on Goodyear's. Yeah, um, without a doubt, Goodyear came with a with a new rain tire, which was better than their previous rain tire. But Michelin still had the better the better rain tire. And finally, Peter Snowden chose Monaco nineteen ninety two. And uh, interesting, Snowy, that you talked about about Senna staying in front of, of Mansell um, legally and that he um, that he did it in in a proper racing mode. Well, legally, think, sport, legally, sportingly and intelligently. That's the point. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. And I think that, that uh, all things considered, 
That is why you have won Cor- Corridors of Power. Yeah. Congratulations. Bravo, bravo. Nicely done. Bravo. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're very, very, very kind. That's a good way to start the new year, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it just? Yeah. yeah. Isn't it just? Um, so, gentlemen, thank you so much for this. It's been, uh, been an absolute joy. Please remember that if you've enjoyed this game show, this game show of opinionated nonsense <laughs> that it is, um, <laughs> And if you're in the UK or can get to the UK, then come and see us on the live stage at Race Retro at Stonely, 23rd to the 25th of February, because we'll be doing all this all over again, but with different subjects. Thank you to Patrick Peter for a fascinating insight into the world of Peter Auto. And I must also thank Paul Jurd, Nick Padmore, and our winner this time round, Peter Snowden, and special thanks to Jim Roller, who also produces this show as well. So thank you all very much indeed for that. But most of all, my thanks go to you for taking the time to tune in and uh, and listen to the show. My name is still Paul Tarsi. And as always, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. The proceeding was a copyrighted presentation of historic racing news in association with White Squirrel Studios. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or usage without the expressed written permission of historic racing news is strictly prohibited. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.